who's the schnook that got the prize this time? <laughs> I opened up my laptop and I got to the Nobel Prize site and I found out I was the schnook. <laughs> During each October's Nobel Prize announcement week, unexpected calls from Stockholm and Oslo bring joy, surprise and oftentimes sleep deprivation for a new batch of laureates. I'm Karin Svensson, producer of Nobel Prize Conversations. Once again, I've scoured the archives to bring you more of the very best of our October calls to brand new laureates. With me as guest for this bonus edition of the podcast, I have Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. For one busy week each year, when the new laureates are revealed, Adam's mission is to track them down and capture their reactions. These recorded calls offer enlightening glimpses of the personalities behind the prizes. Sometimes a family member picks up the phone first and offers a new perspective. And he came home one day and said, don't get cross with me. This is a stupendous research. It's going to hit the world. It's going to be a revolutionary communication thing. And I said, oh, stop kidding me. Pull the other leg. I just want you home early. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Areces. Let's listen to my discussion with Adam about some of our favorite announcement calls. We'll start with a party. Hello, may I speak to Professor Faringa, please? Who is this? This is Adam Smith, uh, recording from NobelPrize.org, the official website of the Nobel Prize. Okay, uh, can you hang on for a few seconds? Most certainly, yes. That was you, Adam, waiting to talk to Ben Feringa, the 2016 chemistry laureate, right after he'd been given the news from Stockholm. A real party mood there. Does it bring back memories? Absolutely, and it brings back the occasion of the announcement days when uh, parties are sparking off everywhere and you're trying to get this call in between everybody's celebrations and excitement. <laughs> well, two years ago, we did a special episode about these calls that you've been making to new laureates for the last 17 years now. But in our archives, there are so many fun, moving and revealing moments that we couldn't fit it all into one programme. Plus, we've added a few more laureates in the intervening years. So which one was your most memorable call from the last batch from 2022? Ooh. That's a tricky one. Uh, well, for a start, the question is whether I'm, I do really remember them, because, of course, year after year, they sort of blend into one lovely, warm feeling of talking to happy people. But um, I think the conversation with Barry Sharpless stands out in particular for a number of reasons. Why? Well, partly he's somebody I've known for quite a while, from uh, even before I started working with the uh, Nobel organisations. And... He's got a very special mind. It's quite a challenge to tap into that mind because it's so special and because of the way he talks. And so over the years, I've enjoyed exploring how he thinks. And it was quite extraordinary to have the chance of doing that on the day that he heard that he'd received his second Nobel Prize. <laughs> so let's listen to a clip from that call where the two of you discuss the importance of danger in science. I think the most important thing about we came up with was, of course, the the unexpected phenomena. You got to pay attention to those, but uncertainty 
uncertainty usually translates to danger, right, or uh, trouble. And so you should be drawn to uncertainty. <laughs> That's the point, I guess. Yes. And as a discoverer or adventurer or somebody who wants to be a hero, <laughs> it's not simple. It's Curiosity is really dangerous. It's hard to break curiosity, right? You can't get out of curiosity once you get it. It's such an important point. And, you know, you might be attracting a whole different swathe of people to science by telling them that there's danger there. They might like that. That's a good idea. You feel something there. Huh? Yeah, I, I do see. indeed. I do indeed. And what do you feel listening back to that now? Well, isn't it lovely to hear doing science as described as living on the edge like that? I mean, people's view of scientists, I suppose, is rather sedate people who are cautious and uh, evidence-based and all that. And of course, that's true. But Barry describes a risk-taking activity that is akin to driving fast cars, which he used to do when he was a teenager. You're really, really putting yourself into situations where you are up against it, but you're using all your faculties to stay with whatever you're doing. And that's not really the common view of science. But I suppose that for those who have the privilege of being able to live at the very forefront of knowledge, that's how it can feel. And I think that's absolutely thrilling. Mm -hmm. I think my favourite from last year's crop is Barry Sharpless's fellow chemistry laureate, Carolyn Bertozzi. Let's listen to her getting interrupted by the doorbell during your conversation. Well, I'm, I'm very um, optimistic about how you know, science and the culture of science is trending. Um, hold on, someone has just come to my front door. <laughs> someone is ringing the doorbell. Um, and uh, so so I think, you know, it, things are looking so much better and there's so many visible women now. I think there's just every reason to be optimistic. Hi. Okay, are you the press people? Yeah. Come on in. Hi, I'm on the phone with one of the gentlemen from the Nobel foundation. Come on in, my place is your place, make yourself comfortable. Sorry, I've got the Stanford press here. Too. I'm sure. And I think I was lucky to catch you before um, before <laughs> they arrived. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The phone is ringing off the hook and just help yourself to whatever. Grab a soda from the fridge if you're thirsty. This is the middle of the night for you too. So I understand. Okay. So Adam, is there anything, do I have action items here? Because I'm probably not going to remember anything you say. So uh -huh. um, no. it's, you can relax and just enjoy the, the, the show that's going to unfold in front of you. <laughs> I know my emails are, the box is already filled up. So, <laughs> But it's fun actually listening um, to the press people arrive. It's quite nice to get an insight into what happens um, yeah. in the middle yeah, of the night in yeah. California. Um, in, enjoy your amazing day to unfold. Thank you so much. That's a lovely glimpse into the first day of being a Nobel laureate. Indeed. And yes, in places where they have press teams at the ready, it is amazing how fast the comms team is at uh, getting to the right place and taking over. And I think um, many laureates welcome that. They suddenly make life a little bit easier, sorting through the deluge of requests for interviews and everything. But I think the other interesting thing about that is how incredibly accomplished Carolyn Bertozzi is that, you know, not only is she digesting the news that she's just been awarded the Nobel Prize with apparent total aplomb, she sounds very calm, I think, but, you know, she even thinks to offer the crew a drink and tell them to make themselves at home. <laughs> and it's reflective of her personality. She seems to handle academia and the life of being an entrepreneur 
with equal ease, obviously she can just encompass everything. And I don't believe a word of it when she says that she's not going to remember anything. I think she's probably going to remember everything. <laughs> well, one of the most compelling things about these calls is, of course, the emotions, the, the joy, the surprise and the disbelief. And let's listen to snippets from two such delightful conversations from 2010 Literature Laureate Mario Vargas Llosa and first 2008 Chemistry Laureate Martin Chaffee. How did you actually find out that you had... Ah, this is a sort of ridiculous uh, situation, but it sort of funny. I, I woke up at 10 after 6, and I realized that uh, they must have given the prize in chemistry. So I simply said, okay, who's the schnook that got the prize this time? <laughs> so I, I opened up my laptop, and I uh, got to the Nobel Prize site, and I found out I was the schnook. <laughs> Hello? Oh, hello. Uh, is that uh, Mario Vargas Llosa? Yes, speaking. Oh, hello. My name is Adam Smith. I'm calling from the Nobel Prize website in Stockholm. My congratulations yes. on the news of the award. Well, so is, is it true then? <laughs> <laughs> it may, <laughs> it may Because so I've, I receive a call from this, this the Secretary General of the Academy, and I was... Uh, Wonder if it was true or, yeah. or joke of a friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can confirm it has just been announced to the public. I it in has Stockholm. already been announced. So. Well, I'm I'm deeply moved and, and grateful. It's been a a, a great surprise. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I don't know what to say. No, I feel no. overwhelmed, really. Uh, that's a nice thing to say. You've been tipped for some years, so it must. Uh, what does it mean to be awarded the prize? Do you know? Oh, well, I I. <laughs> I I know, but uh, I still don't believe it, you know? <laughs> that really lifts my heart. How about you? <laughs> of course. It's lovely to be taken back to revisit all these lovely people who um, are caught at this moment of um, surprise and happiness. I suppose that's one of the nice things about these calls, that they slightly catch people with their guard down. And I always think of them as trying to explore and reveal something of the personality of this person who has just become a little bit more famous than they were before and who people are going to take an interest in. And what better way to do that than surprising people? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there must be times, as you mentioned, when you felt that you've really gotten the chance to learn something profound about them as people, even in this short amount of time. I think it is a very revealing moment. They are caught pretty much off guard. And yes, at that moment, you do find out who they are. And that takes all sorts of different forms you know, whether they laugh like crazy or, they, or they're very serious, whether they want to talk about something that they know, like their work, or whether they want to just um, live in the moment and not talk about anything other than the fact that it's all rather amazing. I do think there's a good chance to get to know people. But I think one of the things that these calls show in particular, but actually interactions with Lawrence in any way show, is the obvious point, that they're an incredibly diverse bunch. And I think that's particularly important because sometimes, especially if you look at, for instance, the scientists, historically you might see a group of older white males and think, oh, they're all pretty much the same, aren't they? And then if you listen to them talk and the stories they tell and the way they tell those stories, there is a lovely diversity in there. Not that there doesn't need to be lots more diversity, but even in that group, they are such different people. And it's lovely to know that all sorts of different people can make a successful scientist or, or person. 
I can certainly attest to that after listening to about a hundred of these calls in the last week. <laughs> oh, goodness, poor you. <laughs> <laughs> so many different people. It's a real joy. And I think the most interesting are the ones that you can see between the lines of what they're saying, what kind of person they are, and maybe they don't want to reveal too much about themselves, but you still catch little glimpses of them. And I wanted us to listen to 2007 Literature Laureate Doris Lessing to see what we can find out about her through this clip. Do you think of yourself as having a mission when you write, though, I mean, more than to tell stories? Is Absolutely not. No, because I was, uh, don't forget that I was a communist once and we were, uh, had very, very nasty um, examples of this, um, the writer as engineer of the human soul. It's enough to make any of us scared. Mm. You know, I was of that generation. So you so you leave it to the reader to decide what mission they find in your writing? Well, you know, the reader does anyway. The reader makes up his or her mind, and um, the writer goes along with it. There's nothing you can do, really, if they get something that you've written absolutely wrong. You're not then going to issue a little statement saying, oh, dear, uh, that that's not right at all. What I really meant was something else. Mm. No, no, it's um, you write, and then they make what they want of it. So what does this call tell us about Doris Lessing as a person? Well, just a lovely, wonderful person for a start. That's the clash of somebody asking fairly daft questions and somebody giving really straightforward, good answers, I think. You know, what it makes me think is that um, you go into these calls and you, you sort of think maybe you need to guide them a bit. You need to take the initiative. But actually what you've got to do is very quickly find the level that is going to make the best conversation. And in that case, I think it would have been better just to have almost not asked questions and just talked to Doris Lessing, if you see what I mean. She's so excellent at expressing herself, but trying to guide her thought through one's questions is obviously not going to work. I suppose it's just something that these 17 years of making these calls has shown me that actually the less you prepare the better it is probably that's a bit simplistic but in a way it's really down to the moment and just finding out who you're talking to because I'd never spoken to Doris Lessing before and you've got a very short time to try and find out how to have a good conversation with somebody you hit the ground running you've got a short space to make something of the call and yeah you don't want to come in with too many predetermined ideas of what they're going to be like but she's also an example of how multidimensional people are. There is this politeness and the straightforwardness, but then there's a lot of acidity there underneath as well, which I really enjoy listening to. Oh, lovely. Yes. No, I mean, I mean, she was being very polite to me. She could have been much ruder in her answers. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciated that and I knew that she was being reserved and kind. And that doubles the embarrassment in a way. But when she gave her answer, I remember thinking, oh, what a daft question. Why did I ask that? And there have been many examples like that. <laughs> And also, she views the world in a way that um, other people don't. Her writing makes you see things in ways that um, are alarming, because that's not how you would have approached it. There's a rawness to it, which um, I find quite scary. <laughs> Let's listen to a very different sort of person. 2010 physics laureate Andre Game. During the last five years, I compared myself with those Jack London uh, books where where people go in Alaska uh, through a mountain pass trying to carry big rucksacks full of stakes in their rucksack. And after this mountain pass, 
they try to put those stakes in the ground to cover their area. So I many times compared myself with these gold miners with, uh, who are trying to put a lot of stakes in the ground. But if one extends the gold miner analogy a little bit, I suppose those gold miners suffered tremendous competition from each other. Um, do, how do you view the competition in the graphene field now? Because it's so huge. It's enormous competition, okay. I'm very proud when I scoop someone, okay. <laughs> I scoop quite a few people in the area, but I have been scooped on a regular basis myself, okay. So I, I'm sorry about myself and sorry about uh, many other people like Philip Kim, for example, a, a researcher from Columbia whom I certainly scooped. Uh, quite a few times, but he scooped me back. <laughs> he seems like a fun person to be around. Absolutely. <laughs> the person who uh, found out how to levitate objects using paramagnetism. But that's another story. I mean, the connection there with Doris Lessing is, is the honesty. I think that was absolutely super. That was a rare insight into the kind of truth of it, that it's, you know, it's tough out there at the front. And you can't be entirely nice, if you like. You can't be entirely giving. You've got to be a little bit selfish about trying to make your plough your furrow and, as he's illustrating, grab your area of knowledge and hold on to it. And it was just excellent that, again, in a short call, he was, you know, he was revealing about that. Straightforward, honest, lovely. What more could you ask? Didn't he win the Ig Nobel Prize as well? He did. <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe what the Ig Nobel is for those listeners who don't know? Oh, it's a prize for research that makes you smile. And it's done in a kind of jokey way. It's prizes given in fields that they invent in order to suit the research. So they don't stick to one field for the prize. They could award a prize in any field they choose. Um, one that comes to mind was somebody who got the prize for having the slowest moving fluid. So they'd managed to make a fluid in, I think it was in Australia, where they'd, I don't know, had something like seven drops of this fluid flow through a funnel over the course of, I don't know, 30 years or something like that. Just makes you laugh. The best thing, I think, about the Ig Nobel Prize, apart from all the amusement of the fun science they illustrate, and they get people interested in science, which is nice, is the way they stop people. You're supposed to give a talk about your work, but it's supposed to be incredibly short. And if you go on past your allotted time, the way they have of, at least the way they used to have of stopping you speaking, was that a child would come and stand in front of you on stage and say, I'm bored. <laughs> and if you carried on, they'd continue to look up into your face and say, I'm bored. And then after a while, they'd say, I'm really bored. <laughs> and who could possibly continue speaking in the face of a child standing in front of you telling you how boring you are? <laughs> and what did Game win the prize for? Well, I believe it was levitating frogs. I think he used paramagnetism to make some frogs levitate. And I remember he told a story about that he got a letter from a preacher after his Ig Nobel Prize award who asked whether Glyme could help him levitate in his pulpit to convince his congregation that there was more to what he was saying than perhaps they thought there was. <laughs> well, that sort of, sort of sparks the question of whether there is a particular type of Nobel sense of humour. I don't know. We've never had a competition where um, we've got the Nobel laureates to get together and see who can tell the best joke. That's definitely a good idea, isn't it? I do remember standing at a meeting a couple of years ago and I was just standing around watching students and people milling around and a laureate sidled up to me and he said, do you want to hear a dirty joke? <laughs> <laughs> so 
I can't name that laureate, I suppose. But and it was quite a good joke, I have to say. It sort of neatly leads me into the next question, which is that some of the people you call look forward to taking on the role of the Nobel laureate are becoming a very visible public figure, and some do not. And it's especially evident in this clip, where we hear two of the economics laureates from 2012. First, Brian Kabilka, and then his mentor, Robert Lefkowitz. How do you feel about the prospect of the deluge of press attention that's about to arrive? I'm not really looking forward to that. Yeah. I mean, you tend to avoid the limelight, as far as I, I know. Um, yes, I'm, as I said, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not looking forward to that at all. <laughs> Maybe you can minimize the impact. You've been awarded with Bob Lefkowitz, uh, with whom, you, as I say, you, you worked in, in the 80s. And in a way, you're very different characters. How did the two of you mesh together? Oh, we're, we're, we messed together very well. In fact, we're still, um, we speak on a regular basis and he was a fantastic mentor. We are quite different, but, you know, I think sometimes that works out well. Yeah, it's a marriage of op opposites. And I couldn't be happier for him. Hello. This is Adam Smith from NobelPrize.org. First of all, sincere congratulations on Well, the thank award. you. It's a very exciting day, needless to say. I was supposed to get a haircut at 1 o'clock today, uh, which I badly need. If you had video, I'm sure you would agree. But uh, instead, I have a, a news conference to do, so the uh, haircut will have to wait a day or two. Now, it was during the sequencing of the Beta 2 Adrena Septa project that Brian Kabilka joined your lab. And you... Exactly. He was a fellow working in my laboratory. It was clear to me then uh, that he was a very, very special guy. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because he's disarmingly quiet. He's such a such a self-effacing chap. Oh, my goodness. I think he's painfully shy. <laughs> I think that's why he is very self-effacing. And uh, that's just his personality. I it... think I hope he can really enjoy this, especially today and the next month or two, because th this is not his comfort zone, I would say. But hopefully he'll enjoy the trip to Stockholm when... Um, well, I hope he will. I'm sure he will. But for the meantime, we should leave you to enjoy your celebrations. And unlike... Um, Brian Kabilker, I think you, you, you really sound like the sort of person who will enjoy the next few days. Uh, indeed, I intend to enjoy this day to the fullest. That's quite the contrast. Isn't it just? I did know both Brian and Bob before the announcement, so I knew going to these calls just how different they were. Bob Lefkowitz is a New Yorker. He, yeah, as you can hear, he can talk. He's a fantastic raconteur. And Brian Kabilka, I think he comes from Minnesota. He's incredibly quiet. And, yeah, is not somebody who would ever seek attention. Since he's been a Nobel laureate, I've travelled with him, and he's, I suppose, adapted to the life of being centre of attention to a surprising degree. I think he seems much more comfortable than one would have guessed on that first day. But it's, again, it's this lovely possibility of contrast. Both personalities make fantastic scientists. Science is a place for everybody. And the last time we did this, we listened to Michael Kostelitz being told by you that he had received the Nobel Prize in Physics in an underground car park in Helsinki. And it's not often that you've brought this news to the laureate, but it happens on occasion. And let's listen to 2009 Physics laureate George Smith and 2013 Medicine laureate Thomas Sudhoff. Hello. Hello, Professor Sudhoff. Yeah, this is Adam Smith calling from uh, the Nobel Prize website in Stockholm, where it has just been announced that you've been awarded the Nobel Prize, together with Jim Rothman and Randy Sheckman. Are you serious? I am serious, yes. My name is Adam Smith. 
and I work for Nobel Media, which is the media company of the Nobel Foundation. And the announcement has just been made just a very few minutes ago here in Stockholm. Oh, my God. I just had the pleasure of speaking to your wife in California, who I'm afraid I probably woke up, and she very kindly gave me oh. her phone number. Oh, <laughs> poor Lou. <laughs> Let she me just stop for a moment here, because uh, I'm driving in the middle of Spain somewhere. <laughs> um, I was actually thinking that my friend was calling me because I'm a little lost. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> a little unexpected. Um, you, well, your wife seemed very happy to be woken up with the news. Um, <laughs> well, this is quite a an amazing gosh. Hello. Oh, good morning. Uh, may I speak to George Smith, please? Speaking. Well, hello. My name is Adam Smith. I'm calling from the official website of the Nobel Foundation in Stockholm, Sweden. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Have you heard the news that you have, uh, it has just been announced in Stockholm that you have been awarded this year's Nobel Prize in Physics? No, my goodness. <laughs> well, I'm very pleased to be the person to uh, tell you the news. Oh, thank you. I, I'm amazed. Um, I've seen myself and Bill Boyle, I guess. Exactly. Yourself and Bill Boyle, and then also Charles Cow for his work on optical fibres. Oh, very good. Well, my congratulations. Of course, the work you did was done in uh, in the late 60s, in 1969 in particular. Uh, I imagine it's something of a surprise hearing the news at this point. Yes, that's correct. And let's see, uh, what's your name again first? He doesn't really believe what's going on. Can you recall <laughs> the thrill of getting to tell them? Absolutely. What's your name again? Is, is That's what happens to interviews where you do end up telling people. They just keep checking. Hang on again. Just tell me again. And it's a very good example of what we've been talking about, that it's not often that people get captured totally unawares in a sort of legitimate way, that it's okay for the world to listen to somebody receiving that news because it's interesting and they give permission for it. But you really do know a lot more about Tom Sudoff and George Smith from having listened just even to those tiny clips you just played, I think, you do begin to know them, which is which is so nice. In George Smith's case, as I mentioned in the call, it, it was the work had been done in the 60s and it had been a long time since he'd been doing that. Subsequently, when I went on to ask him about the work, he initially said, hmm, actually it's a little difficult to remember because you know I've been sailing for the last 15 years. <laughs> which I thought was so marvellous that he was... Um, you know, he was in a different place now. <laughs> I'd like to sort of address the topic of family as well in, in connection to these calls, because you often reach laureates in their homes. Sometimes it's a family member who picks up the phone and many laureates mention their loved ones in the conversation, like 2016 chemistry laureate Fraser Stoddard talked about the sadness of not being able to share the news with his wife, Norma, who passed away 12 years prior. In 2014, economics laureate Jean Théorle was especially thrilled to tell his mother Denise about the prize, since she was the one who taught him to value knowledge. How would you describe the importance of family in this moment? Well, I suppose it's different for everybody. It would be really nice to catalogue who the first calls are made to. Who do you tell first? Your partner? Your parents? Your children? Or maybe your co-workers? It's obviously something that it's a joy to share with people and 
I guess the excitement of those around you is possibly even greater than your own excitement. They're so thrilled for you. I was incredibly touched by a photograph that I was sent by Adam Patiputian after I spoke to him. He got the um, medicine prize and he um, sent me a photograph just after we talked of him sitting in bed looking at the Nobel Prize website on his laptop with his son sitting next to him in bed. And his son has his hand resting on his father's shoulder. Lovely photo. And I said to Adam that it was a beautiful photo and thank you. And he said, well, you know, this actually was a particularly special photograph because not only does it capture the moment of being awarded the prize and the loveliness of that, but it's also a, quite a rare one because my son is 17 and there he is sitting with his hand tenderly on my shoulder. And, you know, 17-year-olds don't so often put their hands tenderly on their dads. And I could really relate to that because I've got a 17-year-old. And uh, yes, isn't it nice that uh, it brings families together? And that, I suppose that photo perhaps encapsulates what the prize does. One example of how intertwined the family is is a lovely clip from last year with uh, physics laureate John Clauser. And the one who picks up the phone is his wife, Celine. Let's listen to that. John Clauser, please. He is Zooming right now with England. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I understand but that. But he should be off in a second. Okay, that Hang would be... on. <laughs> Thank you. It's a very exciting day. Yes. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Adam Smith, and I'm calling from the website of the Nobel Prize. I... Uh -huh. I'm... I've been talking all, all, all day with... Uh... Uh, with various news. I have never had yet to hear anything from uh, the Swedish Academy. Okay, well, um, first of all, many, many congratulations on the award. Thank you. Uh, you have, I guess you have already been, as you said, on calls all morning. <laughs> yes, uh, took me a long time before I even got a cup of coffee. <laughs> I got waked up at three in the morning. <laughs> My goodness, what a start to a very long day. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so far, it uh, took me uh, over an hour to even get my pants on. <laughs> there were so many phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it's hard work to be the partner of a newly minted laureate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes, you're fielding a lot of people and um, I suppose to a certain extent steering the ship around them. There have been lots of lovely discussions with partners over the years as one finds one's way to the new laureate and they're fascinating and lovely and you, you also get a different view of what's going on. Well, there is one call from 2009 where a spouse has a particularly important role. When uh, physics laureate Charles Cow was awarded the prize, he was suffering from Alzheimer's and had trouble communicating. And your conversation was mostly with his wife, Gwen. And what a conversation it was. Were you aware that your husband was coming up with something quite so marvellous in 1966? At the time, he was, I had small kids and he was always coming home late for dinner. And he came home one day when I was getting very cross with him. I remember that because he's always late for dinner and I'm waiting for him with these two children that's very anxious to see their father. And he came home one day and said, oh, don't, don't get cross with me. This is a stupendous uh, research. It's going to hit the world. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be a revolutionary communication thing. And I said, oh, stop kidding me. Pull the other leg. You know, get on, come home early. I just want you home early. And he says, you wait and see. <laughs> well, I didn't believe him at the time. 
How do you feel listening to that? Hmm. I feel, for one, that, uh, uh, again, it's, it emphasises the value of talking to people who are so close to the laureates. You can learn so much and have such interesting insights from those who've lived around those people while they were doing their work, whether it's writers or scientists. But what does this specific conversation with Gwen Cow tell us about a life in science and about the Nobel Prize that we wouldn't have gotten out of a more straightforward conversation with the new laureate? Well, you know, frankly, I don't really bother to go down the track of saying you know, how important has your family been in this research or whatever on these calls because you just get a short and nice answer about, you know, of course, I could never have done it without them and all the rest of it. This isn't the place for that. We can talk about family later. So I suppose... That got right to the heart of the matter of how hard he was working when he was doing this research into optical fibres. And that's a very common story, that laureates in general have to work very hard doing whatever it is they do with enormous commitment for big periods of their lives. And if you have a family around you, if you have dependents, probably other people are taking some of the strain. It's not something that I find laureates particularly like to talk about, even when they themselves have taken the strain. I can think of one laureate who had, in fact, raised his four children on his own, pretty much. And I thought that was fascinating because it's so unusual. But even that, you know, he didn't really want to talk about that. And I can see why. For them, it's about the work. It's not so much about the family. So it's great to talk to Gwen in this case and get a different way in to seeing what family life was like in their household when um, the work research was ongoing. I think maybe it also makes you wonder if he could have done this without this fun, dynamic person in his life. I think it's almost impossible to do work like this without having the right people around you. And that's at every level. Nobody's an island. Nobody's doing this without tons of support. And laureates will universally, of course, give credit to those around them who've made it possible. But then if you begin to explore individual, if you like, sacrifices that have been made by others to make it possible for them to do their work, yeah, it's very revealing and interesting. I mean, I'm thinking of um, just one conversation with one laureate and not to name anyone, but, you know, he said that um, when we moved here, I promised my wife we'd only move for a year because she really didn't want to come to this town. And here we are 16 years later. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's very, very standard. But then, you know, people are living that all over the world all the time. It's a common problem. This could be a cautionary tale. Do not marry a person you think might want to be a Nobel laureate or might turn into one. Oh, well, there's that lovely joke. There's a, a Nobel laureate and his wife, and they're driving in the southwest of the US, and they stop at a gas station to get gas. And uh, while the laureate goes in to pay, his wife is in the car, and uh, she sees her talking to the guy who's pumping the gas. And they kiss passionately, and the laureate kind of lets that happen, and then goes back to the car and drives off. And after a while, he says, so who was the guy pumping gas? And she says, well... You don't know this, but uh, before I met you, I had a long-term boyfriend, and actually that was him. And he says, well, I bet you're glad you married me rather than him. And she says, well, if I'd married him, he'd have been the Nobel laureate. <laughs> For many years, I used to stay in a particular place in Stockholm before walking into the office to do these calls. And it being early October, 
and autumn coming slightly earlier in Sweden than it comes in the UK where I'm from. The horse chestnut trees were already dropping their fruit. And so the horse chestnuts, which we call conkers in <laughs> England, <laughs> lie around on the floor and they used to be just outside the place I stayed. So I used to pick up a couple of conkers and I'd fiddle with those as I wandered in to the office. And I did that the first time I ever did the calls and so I just carried on doing it. And I used to collect these conkers on my desk during the course of the week. And so by the end of the week, I had uh, six pairs of conkers sitting on the desk, 12 conkers. And uh, then the next year I'd start again and make another collection of 12 conkers. And so had I continued that, there would be now 204 conkers sitting on the desk. But uh, sadly, they get swept away and <laughs> thrown away. Occasionally, I find them sitting around in drawers. There would be no room for you in the end. No, still, there'd be a lot of conkers to hurl at the wall in frustration when I couldn't reach somebody. <laughs> I hope you don't have any of those feelings this year and I, I wish you all the luck and a, a lovely announcement week experience. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, goodness knows what this year will bring. Let's hope it's, um, let's hope it's a good one. You just heard a bonus episode of Nobel Prize Conversations. If you enjoyed these stories, you won't want to miss our upcoming conversations with the 2023 laureates, published as they happen. Adam Smith will be among the first in the world to congratulate this year's new class of laureates. Subscribe today. This special season kicks off on October the 2nd. You can follow the 2023 Nobel Prize announcements on nobelprize.org with live streams and complete prize information. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of Filt and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer and host for this episode was me, Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart and Olivia Lundqvist. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 